Chapter Twelve of All in the Day's Work by Ida Tarbell. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. Muckraker or Historian. It was inevitable that my visits to Twenty Six Broadway should be noised among critics and enemies of the Standard Oil Company, curious about what McClure's was going to do it was not infrequent for someone on the independent side to say with a wise nod of the head oh they'll get around you you'll become their apologist before you get through it was quite useless for me to insist that i was trying to be nobody's apologist that i was trying to balance what i found at least two people of importance whose experiences i was anxious to hear from their own lips refused to see me i learned later that henry d lloyd had written them after he learned i was seeing mr rogers that they had better not talk better not show me their papers that inevitably i should be taken in now i had already talked with mr lloyd already had help from him but the rogers association evidently upset him for a time my first article seemed to reassure him for he wrote me at once on its appearance i read your first instalment of the story of the standard oil company with eager curiosity then intense interest and then great satisfaction he seems to have divined at once where i was heading the suspicion of my relations with twenty six broadway cut me off for some two years from one of the most interesting independent warriors in the thirty years struggle this was one lewis emery jr whom i had known from childhood he had grown up in the oil business side by side with h h rogers he had been a producer and a refiner as well as one of the powerful factors in building up the pure oil company the integrated concern in which my brother was carrying on from the start mr emery had fought the standard's pretensions individually and collectively politically and financially he had a gift for language a marvellous vituperative vocabulary and he had no restraint in using it he was a feature of almost every investigation every lawsuit a member of every combination of producers and refiners where he was there were sure to be lively exchanges between him and the representatives of the other side his particular abomination was john archbold vice-president of the standard oil company a person as free with charges and epithets as lewis emery himself you are a liar he shouted one day in an investigation when mr emery had made an exaggerated charge joseph h choate was mr archbold's lawyer there there mr archbold he said we'll put mr emery on the stand and convict him of perjury without noticing mr choate's remark mr emery called across the table young man if this table wasn't so wide i would tweak your nose for that such exchanges were not infrequent henry rogers who really liked lewis emery was always trying to calm him down can't you stop this lou he said one day come with us and it will be better for you there is no hope for you alone but with us there is a sure thing mr emery who told me of this offer said henry i can't do it even if i wanted to they would mob me in the oil region if i went back on them they would not have mobbed him but they would have done what would have been worse for a man of his temperament his passion for free action whether wise or unwise they would have ostracized him the most tragic effect i had seen in my girlhood of going over to the standard as it was called was partial ostracism of the renegade 
when a man's old associates crossed to the other side of the street rather than meet him when nobody stopped him on the street corner to gossip over what was going on few men were calloused enough not to suffer it was worse than mobbing the oil region as a matter of fact never mobbed any man so far as i know though it did occasionally destroy property and once at least hung mr rockefeller himself in effigy by this time lewis emery had fought his way to a substantial position in the oil world but to the end he prided himself on being a victim when he finally talked to me after he learned from mr lloyd that the embargo against me had been raised he said with what seemed to me considerable satisfaction i have been tortured i am a wounded man because of them and i hate them in spite of this he was getting a good deal out of life he was a rich man and he was making the most of his money he never let money stifle his personality his success in being himself was in striking contrast to that of most of the successful oil men of that day whom i knew most of them independent and standard submitted to an application of veneer a change of habits which destroyed much of their natural flavor they took little part in politics and social agitation they remained regular in all things they made their investments only in sure enterprises you always knew where to find them but not so lewis emery jr he continued to wear his clothes naturally to go his own erratic way he threw himself into political movements wise and unwise and he never lost his pioneering spirit after he was seventy years old as a final fling he took on a gold mine in peru a gold mine which was reached by climbing mountains and descending narrow paths cut out of rock crossing swaying rope bridges approaches fit only for the most daring mountain climbers yet there he was when nearly eighty charging up and down those mountains and trotting his mule across those bridges when younger men led their mules and crept the degree to which he was reconciled to me after two years of ostracism was proved by his annual invitation to come along to peru with his party and i would have gone and told the story of his mine as he wanted me to do if it had not been for the pictures he sent me those pictures of unprotected swaying bridges suspended from mountainside to mountainside hundreds of feet above the rushing rocky streams i had not the head for that and so gave up what would have been i am sure one of the most amusing adventures that ever came my way not a few of the personal experiences in gathering my materials left me with unhappy impressions more unhappy in retrospect perhaps than they were at the moment they were part of the day's work sometimes very exciting parts there was the two hours i spent in studying mr john d rockefeller as the work had gone on it became more and more clear to me that the standard oil company was his creation an institution is the lengthened shadow of one man says emerson i found it so everybody in the office interested in the work began to say after the book is done you must do a character sketch of mr rockefeller i was not keen for it it would have to be done like the books from documents that is i had no inclination to use the extraordinary gossip which came to me from many sources if i were to do it i wanted only that of which i felt sure i had proof 
only those things which seemed to me to help explain the public life of this powerful patient secretive calculating man of so peculiar and special a genius you must at least look at mr rockefeller my associates insisted but how mr rogers himself had suggested that i see him i had consented i had returned to the suggestion several times but at last was made to understand that it could not be done i had dropped his name from my list it was john siddle who then took the matter in hand you must see him was siddle's judgment to arrange it became almost an obsession and then what seemed to him like a providential opening came it was announced that on a certain sunday of october nineteen o three mr rockefeller before leaving cleveland where he had spent his summer for his home in new york would say good-bye in a little talk to the sunday school of his church a rally it was called as soon as siddle learned of this he begged me to come on we can go to sunday school we can stay to church i will see that we have seats where we have a full view of the man you will get him in action of course i went feeling a little mean about it too he had not wanted to be seen apparently it was taking him unaware siddle's plan worked to perfection worked so well from the start that again and again he seemed ready to burst from excitement in the two hours we spent in the church we had gone early to the sunday school room where the rally was to open a dismal room with a barbaric dark green paper with big gold designs cheap stained glass windows awkward gas fixtures comfortable of course but so stupidly ugly we were sitting meekly at one side when i was suddenly aware of a striking figure standing in the doorway there was an awful age in his face the oldest man i had ever seen i thought but what power at that moment siddle poked me violently in the ribs and hissed there he is the impression of power deepened when mr rockefeller took off his coat and hat put on a skull-cap and took a seat commanding the entire room his back to the wall it was the head which riveted attention it was big great breadth from back to front high broad forehead big bumps behind the ears not a shiny head but with a wet look the skin was as fresh as that of any healthy man about us the thin sharp nose was like a thorn there were no lips the mouth looked as if the teeth were all shut hard deep furrows ran down each side of the mouth from the nose there were puffs under the little colourless eyes with creases running from them wonder over the head was almost at once diverted to wonder over the man's uneasiness his eyes were never quiet but darted from face to face even peering around the jog at the audience close to the wall when he rose to speak the impression of power that the first look at him had given increased and the impression of age passed i expected a quavering voice but the voice was not even old if a little fatigued a little thin it was clear and utterly sincere he meant what he was saying he was on his own ground talking about dividends dividends of righteousness if you would take something out he said clenching the hand of his outstretched right arm you must put something in 
emphasizing put something in with a long outstretched forefinger the talk over we slipped out to get a good seat in the gallery a seat where we could look full on what we knew to be the rockefeller pew mr rockefeller came into the auditorium of the church as soon as sunday school was out he sat a little bent in his pew pitifully uneasy his head constantly turning to the farthest right or left his eyes searching the faces almost invariably turned towards him it was plain that he and not the minister was the pivot on which that audience swung probably he knew practically everybody in the congregation but now and then he lingered on a face peering at it intently as if he were seeking what was in the mind behind it he looked frequently at the gallery was it at siddle and me the services over he became the friendly patron saint of the flock coming down the aisle where people were passing out he shook hands with everyone who stopped saying a good sermon the doctor gave us a good sermon it was a very good sermon wasn't it my two-hour study of mr rockefeller aroused a feeling i had not expected which time has intensified i was sorry for him i know no companion so terrible as fear mr rockefeller for all the conscious power written in face and voice and figure was afraid i told myself afraid of his own kind my friend lewis emery jr priding himself on being a victim was free and happy not gold enough in the world to tempt him to exchange his love of defiance for a power which carried with it a head as uneasy as that on mr rockefeller's shoulders my unhappiness was increased as the months went by with the multiplying of tales of grievances coming from every direction i made a practice of looking into them all as far as i could and while frequently i found solid reasons for the complaints frequently i found the basic motives behind them suspicion hunger for notoriety blackmail revenge the most unhappy and most unnatural of these grievances came to me from literally the last person in the world to whom i should have looked for information frank rockefeller brother of john d rockefeller frank rockefeller sent word to me by a circuitous route that he had documents in a case which he thought ought to be made public and that if i would secretly come to him in his office in cleveland he would give them to me i knew that there had been a quarrel over property between the two men it made much noise at the time eighteen ninety three had gone to the courts had caused bitterness inside the family itself but because it was a family affair i had not felt that i wanted to touch it but here it was laid on my desk so i went to cleveland where john siddle had a grand opportunity to play the role of sleuth which he so enjoyed his problem being to get me into mr rockefeller's office without anybody suspecting my identity he succeeded i found mr rockefeller excited and vindictive he accused his brother of robbing his word him and his partner james corrigan of all their considerable holdings of stock in the standard oil company the bare facts were that frank rockefeller and james corrigan had been interested in the early standard oil operations in cleveland and had each acquired then a substantial block of stock later they had developed a shipping business on the lakes iron and steel furnaces in cleveland 
in the eighties they had borrowed money from john d rockefeller putting up their standard oil stock as collateral then came the panic of ninety three and they could not meet their obligations in the middle of their distress john rockefeller had foreclosed taking over their stocks leaving them so they charged no time in which to turn around although they felt certain that they would be able a little later out of the substantial business they claimed they had built up to pay their debt to him their future success proved they could have done so i could see john rockefeller's point as i talked with his brother frank frank rockefeller was an open-handed generous trader more interested in the game than in the money to be made he loved good horses raised them i believe on a farm out in kansas he liked gaiety free spending from his brother john's point of view he was not a safe man to handle money he did not reverence it he used it in frivolous ways of which his brother did not approve so it was as a kind of obligation to the sacredness of money that john rockefeller had foreclosed on his own brother and his early friend james corrigan he was strictly within his legal rights and within what i suppose he called his moral right but the transaction left a bitterness in frank rockefeller's heart and mind which was one of the ugliest things i have ever seen i have taken up my children from the rockefeller family lot or shall take up i do not know now which it was they shall not lie in the same enclosure with john d rockefeller the documents in this case which i later analyzed for the character sketch on which we had decided present a fair example of what were popularly called standard oil methods as well as what they could do to the minds and hearts of victims the more intimately i went into my subject the more hateful it became to me no achievement on earth could justify those methods i felt i had a great desire to end my task hear no more of it no doubt part of my revulsion was due to a fagged brain the work had turned out to be much longer and more laborious than i had had reason to expect the plan i had taken to mr mcclure in the fall of eighteen ninety which we had talked over in salso maggiore italy i still have notes of our talk on a yellow piece of the stationery of the hotel des termes called for three papers possibly twenty-five thousand words but before we actually began publication mr phillips and mr mcclure decided we might venture on six we went through the six and the series was stretched to twelve before we were through we had nineteen articles and when the nineteen were off my hands i asked nothing in the world but to get them into a book and escape into the safe retreat of a library where i could study people long dead and if they did things of which i did not approve it would be all between me and the books there would be none of these harrowing human beings confronting me tearing me between contempt and pity admiration and anger baffling me with their futile and misdirected power or their equally futile and misdirected weakness i was willing to study human beings in the library but no longer for a time at least in flesh and blood so i thought the book was published in the fall of nineteen o four two fat volumes with generous appendices of what i considered essential documents i was curious about the reception it would have from the standard oil company i had been told repeatedly they were preparing an answer to flatten me out 
but if this was under way it was not with mr rockefeller's consent i imagined to a mutual friend who had told him the article should be answered mr rockefeller was said to have replied not a word not a word about that misguided woman to another who asked him about my charges he was reported as answering all without foundation the idea of the standard forcing anyone to sell his refinery is absurd the refineries wanted to sell to us and nobody that has sold or worked with us has but made money is glad he did so i thought once of having an answer made to the mcclure articles but you know it has always been the policy of the standard to keep silent under attack and let their acts speak for themselves in the case of the lloyd book they had kept silent but only because mr rockefeller had been unable to carry out his plans for answering what he had proposed was a jury of the most distinguished clergymen of the day to consider mr lloyd's argument and charges certain clergymen invited refused unless there should be a respectable number of economists added to the jury that apparently mr rockefeller did not see his way to do and the plan was abandoned so far as i know mr lloyd's book was never answered by the standard oil company but i wanted an answer from mr rockefeller what i got was neither direct nor from my point of view serious it consisted of wide and what must have been a rather expensive anonymous distribution of various critical comments the first of these was a review of the book which appeared in the nation soon after its publication the writer one of the nation's staff reviewers i later learned sneered at the idea that there was anything unusual in the competitive practices which i called illegal and immoral they are a necessary part of competition he said the practices are odious it is true competition is necessarily odious was it necessarily odious i did not think so the practices i believed i had proved i continued to consider much more dangerous to economic stability than airing them even if i aired them in the excited and irrational fashion the review charged as i saw it the struggle was between commercial machiavellism and the christian code the most important part of the indirect answers was an able book by gilbert holland montague it separated business and ethics in a way that must have been a comfort to twenty-six broadway as soon as it was published mr montague's book became not exactly a best-seller but certainly a best circulator libraries ministers teachers prominent citizens all over the land receiving copies with the compliments of the publisher numbers of them came back to me with irritated letters we have been buying books for years from this house wrote one distinguished librarian and never before was one sent with their compliments i understand that libraries all over the country are receiving them can it be that this is intended as an advertisement or is it not more probable that the standard oil company itself is paying for this widespread distribution the general verdict seemed to be that the latter was the explanation some time later there came from the entertaining elbert hubbard of the roycroft shop of east aurora new york an essay on the standard extolling the grand results from the centralization of the industry in their hands 
i have it from various interested sources that five million copies were ordered printed in pamphlet form by the standard oil company and were distributed by mr hubbard they went to school teachers and journalists preachers and leaders from the atlantic to the pacific hardly were they received in many cases before they were sent to me with angry or approving comments for a couple of years my birthday and christmas offerings were sure to include copies of one or the other of these documents with the compliments of some waggish member of the mcclure group i had hoped that the book might be received as a legitimate historical study but to my chagrin i found myself included in a new school that of the muckrakers theodore roosevelt then president of the united states had become uneasy at the effect on the public of the periodical press's increasing criticisms and investigations of business and political abuses he was afraid that they were adding to the not inconsiderable revolutionary fever abroad driving people into socialism something must be done and in a typically violent speech he accused the school of being concerned only with the vile and debasing its members were like the man in john bunyan's pilgrim's progress who with eyes on the ground raked incessantly the straws the small sticks and dust of the floor they were muckrakers the conservative public joyfully seized the name roosevelt had of course misread his bunyan the man to whom the interpreter called the attention of the pilgrim was raking riches which the interpreter contemptuously called straws and sticks and dust the president would have been nearer bunyan's meaning if he had named the rich sinners of the times who in his effort to keep his political balance he called malefactors of great wealth if he had called them muckrakers of great wealth and applied the word malefactors to the noisy and persistent writers who so disturbed him i once argued with mr roosevelt that we on mcclure's were concerned only with facts not on stirring up revolt i don't object to the facts he cried but you and baker baker at that time was carrying on an able series of articles on the manipulations of the railroads but you and baker are not practical i felt at the time mr roosevelt had a good deal of the unusual conviction of the powerful man in public life that correction should be left to him a little resentment that a profession outside his own should be stealing his thunder this classification of muckraker which i did not like helped fix my resolution to have done for good and all with the subject which had brought it on me but events were stronger than i all the radical reforming element and i numbered many friends among them were begging me to join their movements i soon found that most of them wanted a tax they had a little interest in balanced findings now i was convinced that in the long run the public they were trying to stir would weary of vituperation that if you were to secure permanent results the mind must be convinced one of the most heated movements at the moment was the effort to persuade the public to refuse all gifts which came from fortunes into the making of which it was known illegal and unfair practices had gone do not touch tainted money men thundered from pulpit and platform among them so able a man as dr washington gladden 
the rockefeller fortune was singled out because about this time mr rockefeller made some unusually large contributions to colleges and churches and general philanthropy it is done cried the critics in order to silence criticism frequently someone said to me you have opened the rockefeller purse but i knew and said in print rather to the disgust of my friends in the movement that there was an unfairness to mr rockefeller in this outcry it did not take public criticism to open his purse from boyhood he had been a steady giver in proportion to his income ten per cent went to the lord and through all the harrowing early years in which he was trying to establish himself as a money-maker he never neglected to give the lord the established proportion as his fortune grew his gifts grew larger he not only gave but saw the money given was wisely spent and he trained his children particularly the son who was to administer his estate to as wise practice in public giving as we have ever had that is it did not take a public outcry such as came in the early years of this century against the methods of the standard oil company to force mr rockefeller to share his wealth he was already sharing it indeed in the fifteen years before nineteen o four he had given to one or another cause some thirty-five million dollars if his gifts were larger at this time than they had ever been before his money-making was greater if they were more spectacular than ever before it may have been because he thought it was time to call the public's attention to what they were getting out of the standard oil fortune at all events it seemed to me only fair that the point should be emphasized that it had not taken a public revolt against his methods to force him to share his profits i could not escape the controversies hard as i tried nor could i escape events events which were forcing me against my will to continue my observations and reports my book was hardly published before it was apparent that the oil field which it had covered and which for so long had been supposed to be the only american oil field of importance was soon to be surpassed by those in the southwest the first state to force recognition of the change on the country at large was kansas where suddenly in the spring of nineteen o five there broke out an agitation as unexpected to most observers as it was interesting to those who knew their oil history kansas we old-timers told ourselves was duplicating what the oil creek had done in eighteen seventy two it was putting on a revolt how had it come about for a number of years wildcatters with or without money had been prospecting for oil in the state only a modest production was rewarded them at first but in nineteen o four oil suddenly poured forth in great quantities on the instant kansas went oil mad practically every farmer in the state dreamed of flowing wells as soon as it was proved that kansas was to be a large field the standard took charge it leased drilled and most important it threaded the state with its pipeline system no sooner was oil proved to be on a farmer's land than the pipeline people were there caring for it at market rates but they began not only to develop and handle scientifically and efficiently but quite as scientifically and efficiently they began to get rid of all the small fry that in the early days of small wells had been refining and marketing they would take 
all the oil that kansas could produce they said but on their own terms they wanted no interference as soon as this became clear to kansas the state rose in revolt the populists who for six years now must needs grumble in a corner came out to inveigh with all of their old fervor against the trust women's clubs took it up political parties took it up a program was developed the gist of which was that kansas would take care of its own oil bills were introduced into the legislature calculated to control railroad rates pipeline rates competitive marketing to the joy of the populists and to the horror of the conservatives a bill for a state refinery was presented by the governor himself kansas had a hemp factory in the state penitentiary not doing so badly why should not the penitentiary run an oil refinery too the legislature agreed to do it the excitement grew and so attracted the attention of the country that the office concluded that i must go out and see what i could make of it i did not much want to go not only because of my desire to free myself of the subject but because my heart was too heavy with personal loss to feel enthusiasm for any task in the spring of nineteen o five my father had died after a long slow illness to me he had always been everything that is summed up in the word dear modest humorous hard-working friendly faithful in what he conceived to be the right he loved his family and friends and church and asked only to serve them his business associates held him as a man of honor and a gentleman father's death for a time darkened my world later i began to realize that the dearness of him was to remain as a permanent thing in my life but in nineteen o five this sense of continued companionship was something which came slowly out of a dark sea of loss so it was with a heavy heart that i went to see what was happening in kansas first i wanted to see with my own eyes if the fields i had been hearing about were as rich as advertised so i spent some ten days driving about southeastern kansas and northeastern oklahoma then just coming in with the promise of great wells it was about as exciting a journey as i have ever made it was on one of these trips i saw my first dust storm driving in a buckboard behind two spirited horses across a practically unbroken prairie my companion suddenly looked behind him jehoshaphat he shouted wrap your head up i turned to see the sky from horizon to zenith filled with dark rolling clouds it was not from fire what was it a dust storm my companion cried quickly and expertly he prepared to take it he loosened the check-reins of the horses and the spirited animals evidently knowing what they were in for dropped their heads as low as they could hold them and leaned up against each other we wrapped ourselves as closely as we could and like the horses clung to each other the storm did not last long but it was pretty awful while it did the air was thick you could not breathe but it passed and i was ordered to shake myself out i found that i was almost engulfed with a fine black dust that it was packed close to the hubs of the wheels of our buckboard it was ten days before i got rid of that dust for it was ten days before i had a real bath the dust had turned the primitive water supplies into a muddy liquid quite impossible to drink and hopeless for cleansing 
the wonder of it was that the real discomforts counted not at all at the time i had joined an eager determined exultant procession of wild catters and promoters of youths looking for their chance or seeking adventure for the first time tasting it to the full nothing so great as this kansas and indian territory field had ever been known every well was to be a gusher every settlement a city on every side they were selling town lots and stock in oil companies one of the most irresponsible stock-selling schemes i had ever known i happened on in one of these trips two anxious-faced boys were going about among experienced oil men begging them for oil leases preferably oil leases on which there was a proved well the lads had come as sightseers and had been caught in the wild excitement of the region everybody had a scheme to make himself and his friends rich why not they and largely as a joke they had sent out a flamboyant letter offering stock in a mythical oil field the letter had gone to scores of innocents in the east and in answer school-teachers clergymen and women with little or no money had poured in subscriptions if there had been a few subscriptions they would have been able to return them but here they were when i saw them with literally a suitcase full of checks and money orders and not a foot of land leased and in the excitement there was practically no land to be had they must either get a lease or go to the penitentiary they concluded hence their alarm their pitiful begging of older men to help them out of the predicament into which their irresponsibility had plunged them it was not long before i found i was being taken for something more serious than a mere journalist conservative standard oil sympathizers regarded me as a spy and not infrequently denounced me as an enemy to society independent oil men and radical editors who were in the majority called me a prophet it brought fantastic situations where i was utterly unfit to play the part a woman of twenty-five fresh full of zest only interested in what was happening to her would have reveled in the experience but here i was fifty fagged wanting to be let alone while i collected trustworthy information for my articles dragged to the front as an apostle the funniest things were the welcomes the funniest of all was at the then new town of tulsa oklahoma i had arrived late at night in what seemed to me a no-man's land and after considerable trouble had found a place in a rough little hostelry where i was so suspicious of the look of things that i moved the bureau against the lockless door i am now sure that i was as safe there as i should have been in my bed at home i had registered of course and the next morning before i had finished my breakfast i was waited on by the editor of the local newspaper who took me to his office a barn-like structure next door for an interview almost immediately a handsome youth in knickerbockers and high-laced boots came hurriedly in i think i ought to tell you miss tarbell he said with a grin that you are in for a serenade a serenade i said what do you mean well he said the tulsa boomers have been making a tour of cities to the north their special train has just come in they want something to celebrate and learning that you were in town they are sending up the band to welcome you they want a speech i had never made an impromptu speech in my life i was horrified at the idea you must get me out of this i begged of my gallant but 
very amused informer no he said there is no way to escape here they are and there they were a band of thirty or forty pieces several of the players stalwart indians i had to face it and for once in my life i had a happy idea go buy me two boxes of the best cigars that are to be had in town and i shoved a bill into his hand go quickly and then the band began not so bad but so funny there i was standing on the sidewalk with all the masculine inhabitants of tulsa so it seemed to me packed about some of them serious and some of them highly delighted at my obvious consternation i had not guessed wrong about the cigars they preferred them to a speech i saw as i passed around the circle distributing them to the players what was left i gave to the bodyguard which had assembled to back me up a compliment i have always treasured was given by one of the indians as he watched me disposing of my goods he all right still more flattering it was as i went around in tulsa that day to meet gentlemen who had fat cigars tied with little red ribbons in their buttonholes and to have them point gaily to them as i passed but the serenade was not the end of the celebration that afternoon i was taken out in a barouche the only one in the countryside i was told the band behind and paraded up and down the distracted streets of tulsa a day or two later when i went on my journey it was with a seat full of candy magazines books flowers everything that the community afforded for a going-away present i never had been before nor have been since so much the prima donna but all this was preliminary to the real task of finding out what was happening in kansas outside of the production of oil the legislation already passed was intended to make the standard oil company the servant of the state but i had long ago learned it was one thing to pass laws and another thing to enforce and administer them how were they getting on i went first to see the governor e w hoke a humorless and honest man it was he who had sponsored the state refinery i found him impressed by what he had done but a little doubtful about how things were going to come out he was opening his mail when i went in and he showed me letters nominating him for the presidency he had been receiving many of them he said it was obvious they came from radical socialists rejoicing over the encouragement that he was giving to the public ownership of industry he liked the applause but did not like the source he was no socialist he protested to me he was a firm believer in the competitive system the state refinery was a measuring stick he had wanted to settle definitely just what the profits of the refinery business in kansas were nobody knew except experts and they wouldn't tell a first-class oil refinery would settle for all time the cost of refining kansas oil and force the sale at a reasonable price he was not trying to drive private industry out of the state he merely wanted to force private industry to be reasonable the private industry being of course the standard oil company governor hoke and the state as a whole were soon feeling the effect of the letdown which always follows an exciting legislative campaign particularly for the winner not since the early nineties had kansas enjoyed so rousing a time and now it was over and they had to come down to business 
but could they get down to business could they administer the new laws meetings were being held half in jubilation over the successful legislation half in anxiety about the next step i was asked to come in and speak at one of them i was no speaker but i could not let them down moreover because of my familiarity with past exciting experiments on the part of indignant oil independence i realized better than they did so i thought the hard pull they had before them your problem now i told them is to do business as far as laws can ensure it you have free opportunity but good laws and free opportunity alone do not build up a business unless you can be as efficient and as patient as far-seeing as your great competitor laws or no laws you will not succeed you must make yourselves as good refiners as good transporters as good marketers as ingenious as informed as imaginative in your legitimate undertakings as they are in both their legitimate and illegitimate my speech was not popular what they wanted from me was a rousing attack on the standard oil company they wanted a merry lease to tell them to go on raising hell and here i was telling them that they had got all they could by raising hell and now they must settle down to doing business you have gone over to the standard oil company said one disgusted populist i saw i had ruined my reputation as the joan of arc of the oil industry as someone had named me but there were hard-headed independent legislators and businessmen in the state who consoled me you are right we must learn to do business as well as they do one immediate national effect of the kansas disturbance was to arouse the legislatures of other oil-producing states in the southwest to enact laws not unlike those of kansas though i do not remember that a state refinery was sponsored anywhere else there was a wide demand that congress place the pipeline system under the interstate commerce commission subject it to the same restrictions as interstate rails but most important was the fine popular backing the row gave the trust-busting campaign of theodore roosevelt now president of the united states he had begun his attack on big business by putting an end to the first great holding company the country had seen the northern securities company he had followed this by a bill establishing a department for which people had been asking for a decade or more that of commerce and labor including a bureau of corporations with power to examine books and question personnel congress at first shied at the measure but mr roosevelt thundered if you do not pass it this session i will call an extra session and they knew he would ironically enough it was the standard itself that broke the reluctance of congress the proposal had shocked it out of its usual discretion there never was an organization in the country which held secrecy more essential to doing business breaking down the walls behind which it operated was not to be tolerated it seems to have been the peppery john archbold who took charge of the fight against the bill using all the political influence of the company which was considerable at that moment roosevelt soon learned something of what was going on it is not certain how much and when he saw his measure in danger he gave out the statement that john d rockefeller had wired his friends in the senate we are opposed to any antitrust legislation it must be stopped the last thing in the world that john d rockefeller would have done was to send such a telegram to anybody 
probably mr roosevelt knew that but somebody in the standard was passing on such a word and mr rockefeller was the responsible head of the organization his name did the work congress passed the bill in a hurry the bureau of corporations was speedily set up an excellent man at its head james garfield the first task assigned it by the president was an investigation of the petroleum industry this investigation reported in 1906 that the Standard Oil Company was receiving preferential rates from various railroads, and had been for some time. One of the most spectacular business suits the company had seen up to that time followed. The Standard was found guilty by Judge Kennesaw Landis, the present arbitrator of the manners and morals of national baseball, and a punishment long known as the Big Fine, $29 million, inflicted the country gasped at the size of the fine but not so the bureau of corporations my correspondent there contended that over eight thousand true indictments had been found and that the maximum penalty would have amounted to over a hundred and sixty million dollars but even the twenty nine million dollars so modest in the view of the bureau of corporations was not allowed to stand for in nineteen o eight judge peter grosscup of the circuit court of appeals in illinois upset it roosevelt was angry there is too much power in the bench he told his friends but by this time the government had under way another and a much more serious line of attack from which roosevelt was hoping substantial results back in eighteen ninety the congress had enacted what was known as the sherman antitrust law a law making illegal every contract and combination restraining trade and fostering monopoly the government was now seeking to apply this law to the standard oil company was it not the first industry to attempt monopoly had it not been the model for all the brood such a suit was no new idea independent oil men had long talked of it and in eighteen ninety seven they had been ready to go ahead when at the last moment the lawyer to whom they had entrusted their case had suddenly taken ill and died it must have seemed to the energetic lewis emery jr who had been engineering the attack that the lord himself had gone over to the standard ten years went by and then in september nineteen o seven the united states of america began its suit against the standard oil company of new york at all there were months and months of hearings if i had been a modern newspaper woman i could have made a good killing out of that long investigation for more than one editor asked me to analyze the testimony as it came along or give my impressions of the gentleman who appeared on the witness stand but i had no stomach for it i never attended a public examination though of course i read the published testimony with care i knew well enough that the time would come when if i did my duty as a historian i must analyze the suit but that must be after it was ended and a sufficiently practical test had been made of the decision it would be a long time i told myself before i should be obliged to take up the story where i had left it End of chapter 12